This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and develop you into the person God has made you to be. Chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Well-known portion of Scripture, of course. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. By the way, just as an aside... Uh, Those are the last recorded words of Mary in Scripture. Not another word that she ever spoke is recorded after that. Isn't that a wonderful final statement that was made? Whatsoever he says to you, do it. There were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Now what does this story uh, teach us about the Lord? Apart from the obvious meeting of a need for wine at a wedding feast, what are the scriptures really trying to show us? Well, verse 11, it makes it very, very clear. This beginning of signs or miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. The four Gospels between them record for us about 35 or 36 of the miracles that Jesus uh, did. Of course, there was many, many more miracles that he did that are not recorded. As he went about, as Peter says in Acts 10.38, as he went about doing good. During his three and a half years on earth, he did so many miracles. For instance, in Matthew 12.15, it says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And then, of course, Matthew 14.14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them, and he healed their sick. Now, we don't know how many is in a multitude, but we do know that when Jesus fed the 5,000, it it was called a multitude. And so out of all of these thousands, tens of thousands, there must have been hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds who received miracles. John, writing as an old man now, looking back, says in John 21, 25, 
And there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Jesus' miracles transcended and superseded nature very often. They superseded what we would call logic and rationale, and they were supernatural. Now, Adam himself was giving, given dominion and power even over nature. But we know that he lost that through sin. And then when Jesus comes, who is the second man or the last Adam, he's never called the second Adam, but he's called the last Adam. And whenever he came, we know that he showed humanity the power that he had invested in Adam that he lost, that Jesus came with all of that power over nature and over every living creature. And Jesus showed that power again and again and again through signs and through miracles. He had power over nature. He calmed the raging sea. He stilled the storm. You remember whenever the disciples were out fishing all night and they caught nothing. And when they came back in the morning, Jesus told them to cast their nets over the right side of the ship. And when they did, what happened? A great shoal of fish came. It was the wrong time to fish. It was the wrong place to fish. But because of his control and his power, even over nature, he was able to grant them a great catch of fish. You remember whenever Peter had to pay the tax and how that Jesus told him to go out to the Sea of Galilee and cast in a line, a hook, not a net, but just a hook, a line. And he says, you'll catch a fish and money will be in its mouth. Out of all the millions upon millions of fish in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus knew where there was one fish with money in its mouth. And when Peter went out, that one fish out of all of the millions, Jesus gave command and it came right to that very hook of Peter. Hallelujah. Such was his power over nature. Remember when Jesus was fasting in the desert those 40 days and 40 nights and how the devil came and tempted him. In Mark chapter 1, 12 and 13, it says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. You know, sometimes when we read that, particularly when we think about the temptations of the evil one, but we forget that little bit and was with the wild beasts, the lions and the bears in the wilderness, ferocious, dangerous. But yet here is the creator of the ends of the earth and he's with the wild beasts. And although it doesn't say, but I could imagine I could imagine those wild beasts coming to him, coming to their creator and being stroked and being petted by Jesus and that they would go on their way. He was not afraid of them. They were not afraid of him because he was their creator. And then, of course, you remember how that that day he went into Jerusalem riding upon a foal, the colt of an ass, whereupon never man had sat. 
an unbroken coat. And yet, Jesus got on its back. It never flinched. It never bucked. It never tried to cast them off. It was so happy and so proud and so gentle to lead the Savior of the world into Jerusalem on its back. And so he had power over nature. He spoke to the fig tree and it withered and died. He spoke to demons and they fled. He spoke to diseases and they disappeared. He spoke to the dead and they arose. He turned water into wine and he fed a multitude of five loaves and two fishes. Now imagine if God was to come to you. And he said that he was going to give you a worldwide ministry of signs and wonders and miracles that have been unparalleled in all of human history. And from this moment on, you would have the power to raise the dead and to heal every known sickness, every sickness known to man. And if necessary, you could calm storms and even walk on water. And you will launch this ministry by performing your first miracle that will absolutely show forth the glory that God has given you. What would you choose as your first miracle? Hmm. Perhaps it would be like Elijah. You'd call fire down from heaven. That's pretty authentic, isn't it? That would show forth your glory, wouldn't it? Maybe like Joshua, you'd cause the sun and the moon to stand still in Gibeon in the valley of Ajalon. Or maybe like Moses, you'd hold out a rod and cause the Red Sea to part. But Jesus chose none of those things. What did he choose to manifest his glory with? He went to a little obscure village in the foothills of Galilee. away from the lights of Jerusalem and the hustle and bustle of the crowds. And it was there, of all the places and of all the miracles that he could have done to manifest his glory, it was right there in that little place at that wedding feast that he performed his first miracle. Amazing, isn't it? That that would be his first choice. And that would be the place that he would show forth his glory. So how did he show forth his glory? How did he manifest his glory? By involving himself in the ordinary lives of ordinary people. This was God in the flesh. God had come down to earth. In order to manifest his glory among his people. He chose this scene and this setting at the wedding place with family, with friends, in the everyday affairs of daily life. It was a commonplace event, nothing special, nothing different, just ordinary, happened every day of the week. But yet what made this so special that Jesus was there and it was here that he performed his first miracle. 
And so he involves himself in the ordinary lives of ordinary people. He goes down to the shore where Peter, James, and John, they're mending their nets. Fishermen, it's their business. And it's there in their place of business that Jesus goes and he joins them. He invites them to come and follow him. In the marketplace, rubbing shoulders with ordinary people. Any of you ever been to particularly an Eastern market or an Asian market? You know how busy it is. It's crammed full of people. And Jesus would be in the midst of all of that, rubbing shoulders with ordinary people. He'd be at the place of worship, be at the synagogue or the temple. He would be there, watching, observing, teaching, correcting, rebuking sometimes. Standing at the court of the woman where they came and put their money into those receptacles for offerings. And how observant he was when he saw that little widow with her two mites. He'd be found at the sickbed, Peter's mother-in-law. Be found at the deathbed, Jairus' daughter. He'd be found at the graveside. Isn't it interesting? Somebody has noted that in John's record of the gospel, how that John notes his first miracle is at a wedding. And his last public miracle is at a funeral. Somebody said the gladdest place and the saddest place, Jesus was there. And he is there in the gladdest place and in the saddest place, Jordan. He is there with us. Comes amongst us. You see, religion often tends to cut people off from the real world. You get the fakers, the holy men of India, He'll sit up on a pole for 40 days. He'll cut themselves off from society very often. You've got people who'll cloister themselves behind thick walls, men and women, for years on end. You've got sects and cults who have their own communities. They cut themselves off from the outside world. Now it is true that Christianity calls for separation from the world, but never isolation. Never isolation. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And Jesus certainly was a great example of that, wasn't he? He was in the world, but he wasn't of it. No wonder they called him the friend of sinners, because he was always rubbing shoulder with sinners, wasn't he? Not like the scribes and Pharisees. So he manifested his glory by involving himself in the ordinary lives of ordinary people. He manifested his glory by the type of miracle that he did. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. God was doing a new thing. God was bringing a new deal to humanity, a new covenant to men. Isaiah prophesied about this new day that would come. Isaiah 53, 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. God was going to do something different. Instead of law, there would be grace. Instead of justice, 
there'd be mercy instead of penalty, there'd be pardon instead of retribution, there would be redemption instead of damnation, there'd be salvation instead of Mount Sinai, there'd be Mount Zion. Christ gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, Isaiah 61. It's so telling that Jesus chose this as his first miracle. Wine here speaks of joy and gladness. Was that a happy occasion? A joy-filled occasion? And Jesus was sending a signal. Moses turned the water into blood that was judgment and death. Jesus turned the water into wine into joy, into gladness. Thirdly, by the quality of life that he imparts. Verse 10, it says, he kept the best wine until the last. That's the opposite of what the devil does, isn't it? Prodigal thought he was getting the best, didn't he? When he took his father's inheritance and he went off into the far country. To him, that was the best. Couldn't be better than that. But it didn't end up that way. Sure, it didn't. The wine ran out. And he ended up in the pig pen. When Onesimus stole from his master Philemon, and he fled to the city, he thought that was the best. But he ended up in jail, didn't he? Because the natural order is deterioration. The body gets older, the flower fades, the garment gets threadbare. Heart of man grows ever more hardened and wicked and evil. In spite of all man's knowledge and all of his sophistication, all of his technology and all of his understanding, the heart of man grows exceedingly wicked. No wonder Jeremiah says who can know it. And yet for us, he keeps the good wine until the last. With Christ, even though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Our hearts grow fonder, our life grows sweeter, our future grows brighter, our faith grows our hope grows, our love grows, the wine just keeps getting better and better. Glory to God. Scriptures become more helpful and meaningful. Did you notice that? The older you become in your Christian experience, the more mature you become, how the Scriptures become much more meaningful. Well, you know when you get saved at the start, you don't understand very much. You read it and you think, I wish I knew what that meant. I don't understand a word of what I've just read. But you keep at it, and you keep at it, and you keep reading, and you keep reading, and the Holy Spirit then begins to enlighten your mind and your heart. And as you get older, you look back, and you've learned so much, or at least we should have, and we're off the milk, and we're onto the meat of the Word, and we read the Psalms with new eyes that we never saw before, and suddenly the Scriptures become alive to us. It just gets better and better. This is the wonderful thing. I've been preaching now for many, many years, over 30 years, and there's times today 
where you read a scripture that you've read a thousand times and suddenly you see something you never ever saw before. And that's just the way that it is. It just gets better and better. I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. But whenever we get to heaven, we're going to say the half was never told us. When the Queen of Sheba met Solomon and she said, I've heard about you. Many things. But when she heard his wisdom and she saw his riches and his wealth, she says, the half was never told me. And that's the way it's going to be for us when we get to heaven. It just gets better and better and better. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. At least it should be for us. And of course, by meeting the simplest of our needs, the wine ran out. How embarrassing! It was the bridegroom's job to take care of this. He's just starting out in his married life. It's his first day. And he's failing. What an embarrassment. Maybe more guests came than had been anticipated. Maybe they drunk more than they thought they would drink. But for whatever reason, he's running out of wine fast. And he's going to be very, very embarrassed. This is not the way to start a marriage. See, this was important to this young man. I mean, if, if ever he's going to put his best foot forward, it's got to be today, hasn't it? It's got to be today. And yet here he is on the very urge, or the very edge of the biggest embarrassment of his life on his wedding day. It's his responsibility to provide it. What does God care about a weak couple in an obscure village his party is about to come to an abrupt end. What does God care? Well, that's what this miracle is telling us, that God does care. He cares about the simplest of our needs. He cares about everything, about our homes, about our marriages, about our jobs, about our daily needs. The bread that we eat, the clothes that we wear, He cares. He cares about the sparrow that falls, he counts the number of the hairs of her head. We are the apple of his eye. He cares. Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he, what is it? He cares for you. He couldn't care anymore. He cared about Jairus' daughter, didn't he? Even after he raised her up, what was the first thing he said? Give her something to eat. Somebody's calling Lily. <laughs> She's scrambling to get the phone off. <laughs> it's okay, Lily. It happens to us all. It even happens to the preacher sometimes. It happened to me one day in the pulpit, didn't it? I was looking around to see whose phone was going off, and it was mine. It was my inside pocket. It happened to Clifford in Bible Week three times, and the preacher was preaching, didn't it, Clifford? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to be reminded of that, sure, didn't they? <laughs> it's okay, Lily, don't you worry about it. <laughs> he cared about Jairus' daughter. Give her something to eat, he said. 
cared about Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. Cared about the widow of Nain's son who just died and left her. Cared about Bartimaeus' blindness. Cared about the centurion's servant. Cared about the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He cared about all of those things. You know, I was with a group of pastors yesterday morning. We meet regularly. We've been meeting for 20 years, actually. And every time we meet, one of them uh, shares a scripture. And Yul was with me yesterday morning, and one of them shared a lovely scripture. He made a lovely thought. You know, he talked about when Jesus was resurrected and before he went back to heaven. He says, heaven had to wait because Mary was in tears. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where he is. And he says that heaven had to wait. Imagine, he says, all of heaven was awaiting the Son of God to come back in triumph. What a prayer that would be in heaven to welcome him home. And yet heaven had to wait, he said, because that woman was crying, and she needed the comfort of Jesus. See, he cares, doesn't he? He cares. He revealed himself to Mary. He cares. This beginning of miracles are signs to Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Did it in a quiet, unassuming manner. Didn't sound a trumpet. Stayed in the background in the shadows. But he did it. At that point, only the servants knew, and of course his disciples realized. Wonder when the young man was told. Wonder when the couple was let in on it. Hmm. What a moment that must have been. To realize that the Son of God had performed a fantastic miracle. Think of the power. Think in the ordinary event of time how that soil and seed would be involved and a vine would grow and it had to be tendered and nurtured and fertilized and how it would have to flower. Grapes would have to grow on it. They'd have to be plucked and crushed. It'd take months. And yet, in an instant, superseding all laws of nature, because he's the creator, he can do what he likes. In an instant. As one writer says, the water blushed at his presence. It was turned into wine. What a Savior. What a Lord. How much He cares for us today. Every single need we've got. He knows, He understands, and He cares. I'm glad today that that was His first miracle. He set the benchmark for the rest of His ministry on earth. And He went on from then to touch the lives of untold thousands of people miracle after miracle after miracle of every description that's the God that we serve today Amen
Lord, we give you thanks for doing what you did in that marriage feast, setting your seal of approval upon it by manifesting your glory in it. Thank you that you turned the water into wine. Thank you that you bring joy and gladness of heart. Thank you that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Bless you for forgiveness of sins, for a new beginning in life. Thank you for your mercies that are extended towards us daily. For your faithfulness, how you never fail us. You never leave us nor forsake us. You're with us even to the end you promised. So we bless you today. We thank you for who you are. You're a precious and loving Savior. And we're glad for your mercies that are new and they're fresh every morning. For great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more teaching resources, visit www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.